The Quabbin Reservoir serves 46 cities and towns in Massachusetts, mostly in the Boston area. On an alphabetical list of those cities and towns, number one is Arlington, where I happen to live. When I first heard that four towns were flooded to build the reservoir, I imagined a little Atlantis down there, but the water coursed through some intact village on its way to my faucet, and it was kind of haunting. But the reality is even more haunting, particularly for some of the people that used to live in the towns. And the longer they talk about Dana, Greenwich, Prescott, and Enfield, the more the four towns tend to meld into one town, an idyllic place they can still rebuild in their minds. It was a very interesting little town. I remember a double-day store. They had a store. We had a hotel. I remember the common and the church. They had schools. Schools. A congregational church. They had a town hall. They talk about the farms and the mills, and they talk about the river. The Swift River. It's three branches defining the valley, giving it its name. The train ran parallel with that river right through the towns. It was called the Rabbit. So we had the rabbit, and the rabbit left in 36, and then we knew we were doomed then. This is where my grandmother, my father's mother, lived. And then this little house right here behind My name is Robert Wilder. I was born in Enfield, Massachusetts. I left there in 1938. Consequently, now this is all under 107 feet of water. So in order to go home again, I, uh, I would have to uh, have scuba gear. Bob Wilder wasn't even born yet when plans for the Quabbin began. It was around 1890 that Boston started searching for a solution to its water shortage. The story goes that an engineer was fishing in the Swift River Valley and noticed it made a perfect bowl. And if the river was dammed in just two places, that bowl would fill up. Any altitude was over 500 feet above Boston. So an engineering mind very quickly says, well, if you can deliver that to Boston, you won't have to pump it. The Quabbin was in the planning stages so long that a lot of people thought it would never be built. But then, in little more than a decade, the state forced everyone in the valley out of their homes shortchanging them on their houses and land. That was my childhood, is listening to people talk about who was moving. This is Lois Barnes, former resident of Prescott and Greenwich. How soon they were moving, where they were moving, who didn't want to move. It made me a radical. <laughs> it really did. <laughs> How so? Well, because it, it made me feel that the state could not be trusted. And it will always be that way in, in my family. Always we will. I never go to Boston. I would never go to Boston if my life depended on it because there's so much anger at what they did and the unfeeling. There was no safety nets. We were just thrown out. Losing your home may be one of the most traumatic things that can happen to you, especially when you're a kid. Still, after 65 years, I thought everyone who was thrown out of the valley would have gotten over it. But some of them haven't. And hearing how the Quabbin was built, I can kind of understand why. The towns weren't just destroyed, they were unmade. By 1936, hundreds of workmen from Boston were swarming the valley, felling nearly every building, every tree. At the end of it, we would go over and watch, and they would pile up the piles, not only of buildings that were knocked down, but of the brush that had been cut down. They would push brush buildings, anything that was left, into a pile and light a match. I think the best description uh, probably be, it was like stepping into hell because the whole valley was a fire. It was fire, fire all, all 
time and smoke. There was a real, real feeling of, you know, this is the end. <laughs> this is the end. But it was heartbreaking too because now for the first time looking at the denuded land, you could see the bed of the railroad track, you could see the path of the river so clear, so well defined, and it didn't look so large. It looked smaller then. The valley looks much smaller because it wasn't filled with things. It took seven years for the valley to fill up with water. A lot of the people forced out of the valley settled in the surrounding area. Most of them are dead now. Those who remain tend to hold on to what's left of the lost towns as much as they can. Some of those artifacts are kept at the Swift River Valley Historical Society in New Salem, Mass. We made a little schoolroom here. Former Greenwich resident Harvey Dickinson showed me around the museum. But anyway, there's some school bells. This is the bell that just bring me back to uh, class. So a lot of the, a lot of the, I can't say a lot, people who did live in a valley like to come back and see these things. They can relive some of their childhood here. And some of them can relive their childhood by visiting the actual land that surrounds the Quabbin. That's something I wasn't expecting to hear. Most of the land that was taken to build the reservoir is still above water. So some people who lived in the valley will go back and visit their old roads and cellar holes. They visit cellar holes, the way some of us might drive by our childhood homes. And the thing they say about visiting the Quabbin, along with how nostalgic it makes them, is what a beautiful place it is now, full of trees and wildlife, clean shoreline, and how they wouldn't change it back if they could. It's very hard for people to change, and I find that I had adapted to that whole concept that that's what life is all about, it's change. And therefore, I've seen life as a challenge rather than as a fixed place, even though I long for that fixed place sometimes. Even Bob Wilder, the angriest of the former Valley residents I've talked to, says his anger's been diluted by the waters of the Quabbin. He says he's realized over time that what happened to his hometown wasn't simply a tragedy. After all, he says, two and a half million people in the Boston area needed water. And what would he rather have done? Let them go without? It was almost the most you could possibly give, you know? When I joined the service and we had a hot war going and I went and did that, I thought that was the greatest contribution in my life. Until later in my life when I realized, no, it wasn't. That was my life. This is two and a half million lives that we were affecting. There's the contribution. Mm -hmm.